Hi, this is uh, Kent Sinclair speaking, and I want to thank everyone for giving me a reason to put a tie on for the first time in uh, longer than I can remember. And uh, on that, I'm going to actually shut down my video to make sure we maintain um, uh, we maintain good voice quality here because there may be some bandwidth issues. So I'm stopping my video, but hello, everyone. And I'm going to go ahead and share my screen while I... Uh, while I introduce uh, myself. I'm Kent Sinclair. I have my own law practice, Sinclair Law LLC, that focuses on uh, assisting small and medium-sized companies with privacy and cybersecurity issues. Um, and I also get into doing litigation for companies around technology disputes, including privacy, cybersecurity related issues. Um, and uh, I am uh, really pleased to have with me a friend and colleague. Uh, so Jordan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and your practice. Hi everyone, this is Jordan Fisher. Um, I am co-founder and um, managing partner of XPAN Law Group and we are a boutique international cybersecurity and data privacy law firm. So we deal with um, both domestic and international concerns related to cybersecurity, how to secure your infrastructure, how to set up your infrastructure, um, data privacy, CCPA, you name an acronym, I probably use it, have heard of it, and deal with it every day. Um, so I'm really excited to be here to help to provide some guidance in um, some technological cybersecurity and data privacy concerns related to remote work uh, in the current environment. Great. And here we go. So I'll go ahead and kick us off today. So we wanted to really frame how we're going to be talking through these issues um, in today's webinar. And so we're going to take a look and review the current circumstances and guidance that we're seeing from uh, the bar associations when it comes to how you should be practicing law in the current remote workforce environment. Um, and so we're gonna talk about the current environment. We're going to look at some of the ethical guidance that we have related to technology, remote workforce, cloud environments, um, when it comes to certain nuanced concerns that specifically relate to the practice of law that other businesses might not um, have to consider. And then really walk through the things that you can be doing um, in your day-to-day -day operations to ensure that you you are addressing privacy and security effectively within your um, law firm environment. And we really want to make the make it make it clear that this is what we're going to talk about applies if you're a one-person law firm up until if you're a thousand, you know, five hundred, a thousand attorney law firm, right? Good cybersecurity and data privacy is really important no matter your size, no matter your type of law that you're practicing, um, no matter the clients that you're working with. And the things that we're going to talk through really are, are components that you should be thinking about going forward and, and you know, incorporating into your law firm environment. So um, and then we also are going to include some helpful resources that you can use to find more information about this. Um, I want to reiterate what Daniel said in the beginning. We are going to be taking questions throughout, so please do not hesitate to ask any question. Um, and um, we'll try to leave time at the end, but I, I would encourage to ask questions as we go throughout. So I'm going to kick it back to Ken because he's going to give us his sort of, you know, global view of what's going on currently. Right. So, so just I know everyone is aware of the current situation, but I do think it it's helpful to pause for a minute and, and uh, sort of look at how it specifically is impacting our practices and transitioning into the remote environment. 
Right, so the Massachusetts emergency orders related uh, to essential services, right? Initially, there was a, a March 23rd order that was uh, saying that absent being an essential service, you needed to shut down your physical workplaces, but it was encouraging um, operations to continue on a remote basis. And then a week uh, or so later on March 31st, the duration of that closure order was extended out to May 4th. Uh, and there was a revised list of the essential services. And if you look at the most recent version of the list of essential services, law firms or law practices are specifically referenced um, in a provision related to professional services. And uh, so this means that there are a few circumstances in which the practice of law would fall under the essential service exception to the shutdown order, right? So if it's, if it's uh, and these are not well-defined, um, but it's, it's uh, you know, it talks about compliance with legally mandated activities, um, critical uh, sector services, right? So if the legal work relates to the operation, for example, of a hospital or other healthcare facility, um, the law practice would fall under that. Same, same with utilities, just a couple of examples. And then there's a catch-all where it would, uh, would result in significant prejudice if you weren't able to continue providing illegal services during the term, right? And so, again, that's not well defined. Um, whoop, sorry about that. Cursor going wild there. It's not real well defined, but there are circumstances where uh, our law practices could be considered essential um, and that we could go into the office and work in that environment. Um, but even where that's occurring, most uh, law firms have. Uh, and solo practitioners have migrated their practices to be at home. I'd also note that communications and, and information technology um, in many circumstances fall under the essential services exception. So that means that um, you can get IT help and communications help, even if it means going into your office to do something, um, you know, help, help re reset a server, for example, um, that can't be done remotely. Um, that's something that could be done without violating um, the emergency orders. So what's the current context we're operating? These are a few points that, um, you know, a few highlights that Jordan and I thought of when we were preparing this, right? We've quickly transitioned, not just law firms, but most businesses from being, certainly in the professional services context, from being where you had somewhere around up to 20% of a workforce being remote into 90% uh, uh, remote workforce or more. Um, there are adoption, along with that, you've got people adopting new technology, technology tools, and you're doing that not in the traditional office environment, but in a home environment, right? You've got increased use of personal devices, and those devices are sometimes being shared with other family members in the home, right? Um, that can happen a few ways. It might be that you're using a home computer to do work, that someone's using a home computer to do their office work, but it also could be that where the office has provided um, a computer to an employee uh, to do their work from home, that computer might also be the only way that their children have to, uh, to, uh, to do school lessons. Um, or just being used to augment the devices that people have at home and they're being used by, uh, by family members or other people in the, in the home with them, right? 
there's significant cuts to personnel. I think it's an understatement to say that you have a highly stressed workforce and you need to remember that as you're making um, new and increasing demands on them. Um, and you've also got, if you're anything like me, a lot of stressed out and um, fairly needy clients as they're trying to figure uh, these new situations out. So the other thing that's going on is as with all sort of emerging crises and chaotic situations, the bad guys are trying to take advantage of it. So there've been documented significant increases in ransomware attacks, right? Uh, phishing attacks, business email compromises and advanced persistent threats. Now I'm throwing out a bunch of jargon here, um, but let me just very quickly, in case you're not um, uh, familiar with these concepts, ransomware at, a, at the simplest level is where there's um, malicious code that encrypts all the data in, your, in the system that it can get access to and will hold it hostage until you make a payment. So it shuts down your ability to work. Um, phishing is a form of, of social engineering where you use emails to try to trick people in to doing something um, that can be used to your detriment. The most obvious one would be clicking on something that allows um, malicious code to be downloaded. Um, just at home in the last couple of days, I've gotten ransomware that, uh, that was uh, designed to look like someone was um, making changes to my Netflix account, as well as from, my, uh, from Xfinity, my cable service provider, trying to get me to, uh, to click on something, and they were fake. Um, and uh, there's a lot going on um, related to phishing, um, trying to get people to, uh, to, to, um, to do things um, as it relates to responding to the COVID-19 um, crisis that we're in. Um, the other thing, Kent, sorry to, to cut you off there real quickly, but the other thing we're seeing with the phishing is that they're, they're making it look like it's um, the a government um, agency reaching out to you with links to helpful resources because they know you're a business, they know that you're probably going to click on it and then you click on it. So unfortunately we do see this huge uptick in phishing and they're very good at what they do. So be very mindful of what you're clicking on and where you're receiving um, information from. Well, thank you. That's absolutely right. So, so watch out for those emails from the World Health Organization or even from Governor Baker. Yeah. Um, right. So. Um, business email compromise um, is closely related to phishing. That's when um, someone either tries to make it look like your um, an email is from someone within your organization, for example, or actually gets in and takes control of an email account. How would they do that? Well, they might have gotten some malicious code onto a computer um, uh, by uh, through a, through some type of phishing. And then they have a, uh, the ability to watch what you're typing uh, on your computer and they see your password as you type in and then they're able to get into your email, review your email and start sending emails to look like you. And there's a lot of things they can do with that. But one of the typical things is to try to get you to wire money somewhere or to actually take control of the means by which you wire money or try to get someone who um, you're expecting money from to, to wire it to a different location. So that's a big threat right now. It's also been an uptick in what's called advanced persistent threat. That's state actors. Um, that's, that's governmental entities or groups closely associated with governmental entities. Um, 
these are some of the areas that are big upticks. Most of us, advanced persistent threat won't be a huge, um, uh, a huge uh, um, uh, risk area, but depending on your practice, it could be. Um, inadvertent disclosure is also a huge problem. I had to remember, for example, to turn off my notifications on my computer before sharing this screen um, because I didn't want notifications of emails coming in that would uh, identify clients, for example. Um, so things can happen by accident, particularly when you have a lot of people sharing devices, multiple screens open it. Um, and then we've all seen issues related to Zoom bombing um, among other things, people taking advantage of, for malicious uh, purposes, um, the mass adoption of various new technologies, particularly um, uh, in the news recently is Zoom. So I'm going to quickly, we're going to start, as we said in the outline, looking at sort of our ethical obligations, and we're going to transition into some of the other legal obligations. So I'm going to quickly review some of the key rules that apply under the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct. These aren't the only rules, but these are the ones that jumped out at us as we were putting together this presentation, right? There's the rule of competence under Rule 1.1, and specifically there, and this is, is comment eight, this was adopted by Massachusetts in 2015, and it says that lawyers need to keep abreast of the benefits and risks associated with relevant technology. Right. So you need to understand the technology that you and your clients are using to perform uh, in the in the performance of your work as a lawyer. That includes issues related to privacy and cybersecurity. There's the duty of client confidentiality that's closely related to that under Rule 1.6, specifically 1.6C. And there's a couple of comments that go with that that talk about that 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 adopt the reasonableness rule. Right? Was it reasonable for you to do or not do certain things? Or did you take reasonable steps to educate yourself about the tools that you were using to communicate with clients, for example? Um, these same rules um, extend out to, um, to former clients under Rule 1.9, C2. Safeguarding of property is another um, uh, another one, and, and specifically escrow funds or funds being held by lawyers. There isn't a specific, um, uh, explicitly this doesn't talk about these business email compromise, wire fraud schemes, but Bar Council has in a paper, we'll be giving a, a, a link to at the end of the presentation, talked about how this rule specifically, and certainly in other jurisdictions this has been the case, this rule um, indicates an obligation to be aware of an email and wire frauds and to take precautions, reasonable precautions, um, sure that electronic transferred funds are only provided to intended, um, intended recipients, right? That means in part, just trust that an email coming in from someone who looks like a client saying, I've changed my wire instructions. Um, don't just trust that. Pick up the phone or get on a video conference to, uh, to the client and double check with you before you follow those instructions. There's a and few- I, and I, Sorry, can just real quickly, I would say the number one place that we see lawyers falling afoul of security and privacy is in transferring money. It is the easiest way to get a good payday for anyone that's trying to infiltrate your process and 
currently most law firms and most companies rely heavily on humans to transfer money, right? To press the button. And because of that, you are, it's, it's, it's very easy to um, socially engineer around that. It's very easy to, to infiltrate that process. So if you are handling money for your clients or if you are transferring funds, you're doing escrow tr transfers, you need to be very heightened to this, um, especially in the current environment. But I would just say in general, this is where we see the number one issue for most law firms is when they're transferring funds, it ends up being transferred to the wrong location because they've been socially engineered. That's right. And, and, and you should also be aware that there are, are um, there's a very high likelihood that you're not insured for, for, for that occurring. Um, so uh, that's, a, that's a big risk and you really want to be careful on this one, on that one. All right. So just to move it along, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but here, here's, here's three um, sort of technology-related ethics opinions um, that were issued by the Massachusetts Bar Association. The first one in 2000 talked about the use of unencrypted email to communicate with clients, that that was okay. Um, but it did say, among other things, that... Um, if a client says they don't want you to use unencrypted email, you shouldn't. Um, and that particularly sensitive information um, should not be sent um, by unencrypted email unless a client says to go ahead and do that. Um, since that time, we've had some new laws come in place as it relates to personal information, like a name and a social security number or a name and a bank account number that actually specifically say you can't send that information over an open network or uh, uh, unless it's encrypted. That's under the Massachusetts um, data security regulation. Um, um, we got to have a comment here from um, assistant bar counsel. I'm just going to stop to, to dig up, say that an, another important rule that comes into play is rule 1.4. Um, which relates to communications with your clients. And that's, that's absolutely true. Um, I didn't mean to um, uh, not emphasize, uh, 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 you know, that relates to notice if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken as well, giving notice to client in the event that um, some type of data breach might happen. So that's an important rule as well. Th thank you, Pamela. Uh, ethics opinion, um, from 2005 that related to, um, that related to um, uh, the use of a vendor. In this case, it was a vendor who set up, created some software um, and then would maintain it remotely. But, but in the process of doing that, they would be able to see some confident, confidential client information. And so what the, um, ethics opinion says is that the law firm needs to take reasonable efforts to ensure that a vendor's conduct is compatible with a lawyer's professional obligations. Um, I'm sorry, I, my computer is uh, taking on a bit of a life of its own. Closely related to that in 2012, um, we have an ethics opinion that relates to the use of, um, uh, of Google Docs, but it's more broadly applicable to um, uh, to any kind of software as a service type technology um, that's, that's accessed from, uh, from different devices, different locations. And again, in both decisions, what they said is you need, uh, you need to make reasonable efforts to ensure that the provider is uh, meeting uh, 
is going to allow you and then cells will meet their um, data privacy obligations and, maintain, and obligations to maintain confidentiality of sensitive information or client information. In that 2012 ethics opinion, they laid out um, five different things that were being suggested you should do that key around examining the terms of use of the provider. Um, that means you actually have to read what the privacy policy in terms of use before you sign up to start using a new technology. And you want to make sure that it has, contains a use limitation, right? That, that that's only that the information that's uh, hosted on in that environment or that's available to um, to a technology service provider, a vendor, um, is uh, is only going to be used for the auth the purpose that you're for which they've been hired, right? That it won't be used for any unauthorized purposes. Um, uh, and you want to look at among other things, the service history. Are there, have there been known breaches or are there any known holes in the security? Um, and so this comes into play, right? There's been a lot of headlines around, uh, around Zoom and some potential privacy or data security problems with that technology. Um, and that you're supposed to periodically revisit those terms and, and, and this process of vetting the vendors and, uh, and software service providers. Um, this would be a good time to actually do that periodically revisiting because you're relying on certain technologies more. So not a lot of guidance from the Massachusetts, some helpful guidance, but there's more um, through the American Bar Association. So I'll turn this over to Jordan now and just let me know when you want me to move the slide forward, Jordan. Thanks, Kent. Um, yeah, and so I think, you know, we're going to go through two formal opinions um, that we think are very useful from the ABA. And, and both of these are useful. And I, and I always like to start when I talk about these with that I think that they provide some really good breakdowns of how you should be thinking about law firm security and privacy and building out that infrastructure, especially if this is something that you are coming to very new or have not taken necessarily a ton of time to um, really focus on. And so the first one we're going to look at is ABA Formal Opinion 477R. Um, and you can find this available online. And this one I'm going to say is probably the most useful in the sense of generating your the way you should be thinking about security and privacy. Um, and they make it very clear um, and, and this, this opinion is really around securing communication, securing client information, and making sure that your infrastructure and the communication channels that you use with your clients are secure. Um, and it makes it very clear that you may have um, an ethical obligation to add additional protections to your environment to ensure that you are protecting against inadvertent disclosure or unauthorized disclosure of any of your client information. And when we're talking about client information, it really is, includes communications, the storage of that information, sharing that information to opposing parties. Are you doing that in a way that's going to mitigate the risk that some, someone who's not supposed to have access to that information would get access to that information? So Ken, if you could go to the next slide. Thank you. So one of the reasons I really, I'm going to say like, I, I think I don't know if that's the right word, but one of the reasons I like to point out 477R to, uh, to attorneys is that they really lay out some very detailed guidance in how you should be thinking about setting up your infrastructure. And I think they make it very clear at the end of the day, the buck stops with the lawyer, right? So 
you are going to have the obligation to ensure that you're doing everything correctly, but you don't have to do it all on your own. You don't have to go out and get a computer science degree in order to practice law. Um, can you imagine if we had to? <laughs> um, but you need to be an informed consumer of what you're using to set up your infrastructure and then how you're using it. So they lay out these considerations and I'm gonna go through them briefly, but I would encourage everyone to take a deeper look at this opinion. The first is understanding the nature of the threat. So when you're looking at that, what are the threats to you? And I think this is, is one of the most key things that has changed in the last 30 to 60 days, because you might have been going to a physical office space, conducting most of your work in a physical office and not necessarily taking that home, not having your employees take it home, not accessing it via um, you know, insecure Wi-Fi, not accessing it on different devices, et cetera. So you need to understand what is the nature of the threat that you are dealing with, both in your in your day-to-day -day general practice, but then also now in this new remote environment. And we're gonna talk about that uh, further on in the presentation to hope to give you some thoughts of what those threats are. Um, the second is understanding how client confidential information is transmitted and where it is stored. So the first question I ask every single one of my clients is where is your data? And the magical black box of your laptop or your computer is not the answer. Are you storing your data in the cloud? Are you storing your data on a hard server that's located in your office? Um, are you storing your data across many different servers, across many different environments? Do you know? Because each of those questions is going to lead to different security and privacy threats that you need to make sure that you're addressing appropriately. None of them are bad, right? I mean, if you tell me you're storing your data in certain countries, I might be a little uh, wary of that, but nothing is bad. It's just understanding it so that you can make sure you're appropriately addressing it. The third is understanding and using reasonable electronic security measures. So most of the, the frameworks that you're gonna see in privacy and security are around this concept of reasonableness. If you ask me what reasonableness is, I don't know because I don't know the flavor of the day, but it's reasonableness. So not taking any security measures, that's not reasonable. Putting Fort Knox around your data, that might not be reasonable either, right? But you need to be addressing security at some level of reasonableness. If you're dealing with healthcare data on behalf of your clients, you probably need to have heightened security measures than somebody who's dealing with less sensitive data. So taking a look at what the type of practice area is that you do, what the sensitivity of the nature of the information you're dealing with is gonna help you to address, am I doing reasonable things to secure that information? And that's gonna to lead to the fourth one, which is how should you secure these electronic communications? How should we be protecting them? Um, you know, you need to be thinking about, am I using a secure email um, system to, to send emails to my clients? Do I wanna use a portal instead of an email because I find that to be more secure? How am I taking measures to secure the, the information that I'm sending? Am I password protecting my PDF and sending the, the, the password via a different communication channel than an email, right? These are the things you should be thinking about. Um, and again, the opinion lays out a lot of sort of considerations to take into account when you're doing this. So Ken, if you can go to the next slide, please. Um, the fifth consideration they lay out is, are you identifying what is confidential information? So not every information, not all information that you are going to receive is going to have the same level of classification. So you're going to have high risk data, you're going to have medium risk data, you're going to have public information that has not as much risk at all. So you need to make sure that you are appropriately identifying that both internally within your system and externally. 
And when I talk about internally within your system, the reason this is so important is that you should be using access controls around especially sensitive data. So not everyone in your firm, not everyone in your practice needs to have access to everything. And you need to be thinking about what does this employee, what does this person need access to? What do I feel comfortable? What classification level do I feel comfortable giving that person access to? And then developing structures around that to create less access, which decreases your risks to that information. Um, the sixth and the seventh one are really around doing your due diligence. So the, the sixth really talks about you need to train your lawyers and non-lawyers that are in your practice on technology and information security. And this is really poignant in the current environment because many people are using systems, they are using um, infrastructure that they've never used before. And so communicating expectations, communicating um, how to be using those systems is going to be pivotal. But even going forward, training is the most, if, if you spend zero money on cybersecurity and you train people, you are gonna get the most bang for your buck because we can put the best infrastructure around your data. And if you get one happy clicker who clicks on a bad link, it can take the entire system down. So training is always going to be important because people are always going to be behind that technology and people are the ones that can make the most mistakes. And finally, and this sort of dovetails on um, what Kent was talking about on the Massachusetts um, rules, which is you need to be conducting due diligence. So you, there's a lot of really cool technology out there. There's a lot of cool systems. There's a lot of interesting things that you can do, but not everything is secure. Not everything has privacy in mind. So before you go and say, we're going to use this infrastructure to do virtual meetings, you need to do your due diligence. And I'm not saying you need to do a, you know, 20 day due diligence project on this service, but read the terms of service read the privacy notice, read what you're agreeing to, what they're going to do for you, and make sure you understand, be an informed user. So I really would emphasize that you should take a look at 477R. It's really a great way to sort of think about stepping through these, the, what we're going to talk about in the second half of this presentation. Um, so if you go to the next slide, Kent. So the, the second ABA opinion I want to just mention, I'm going to mention it briefly because I want to make sure we have time to go through um, sort of the the fun stuff, <laughs> not that opinion, formal opinions, ethics opinions aren't fun, um, is 483. And this sort of talks about the uh, three um, main duties. So the duty of competence, confidentiality, and notification. So if you go to the next slide, Kent. Um, so this opinion is really about our duty to notify clients and former clients about um, any security incidents that impact their information. And it makes clear that we, again, have this duty to monitor and detect. And that really aligns with that reasonable security and privacy measures. So you have a duty to know what's going on in your system. Um, you have a duty to have an incident response plan. So if you don't have one, this is something that you should be thinking about putting in place. And it's, again, a, a more heightened requirement in, in the current environment because you now have uh, uh, all of your workforce is remote, and so it changes those threats. It increases the um, potential of having an incident occur. Um, and then you have a duty to analyze, and it sort of lays this out as a five W's, but, you know, like, what are you doing? Where is your data stored? How is your data being used? It's this anal analysis that you should be going through, and it dovetails really nicely um, into 477R. So next slide, please. Um, and so... 
this and this is the direct language from the opinion um just going to highlight again you reasonableness is your is your saving grace right so you should be employing reasonable efforts to monitor your systems and your technology that does not mean that you need to go out and buy the the latest and greatest in um, monitoring technology it could just be that you take a look at your own logs that you probably have access to and say hey that's weird that an IP address in China is popping up on my log. You know, there are things that you can do that don't necessarily cost a lot of money, but just might take a little bit of learning and your time to, to start to see um, some anomalies that might be popping up on your systems. So next slide, please. Um, and you have a duty, I mean, this is not a surprise, you have a duty of confidentiality to take reasonable measures to, to make sure that you um, make a, you, you respond promptly to anything that you might see. So um, if you notice that you, that somebody's getting access to your system, you have a, under the duty of confidentiality, you need to um, make sure um, that you, um, that you're responding promptly and taking a look at that. Um, I saw a question pop up in the chats that I want to just address on the logs. So um, the question was, how do you take a look at your logs? Um, so this is something that's going to depend on the, the backend infrastructure that you have. I'm going to address it very quickly. There's very, very helpful resources online for this. And if you want to, please ping me after this. Um, you'll have my contact information. I'm happy to send them over to you. But most infrastructures, both, I'm going to guess that most people here are either on Microsoft 365 or are on a G Suite environment. Most of them have an administrative portal. In that portal, you can go in and find access to your logs. You can find access to who's accessing your system. You can find access to um, who, um, you know, who, wh where they're accessing on your system. So all of these um, uh, th these programs usually come with logging functionality. It's how the technology is built, um, and most of them will be able to give you um, uh, information on where to find that. So, um, you know, we can go ahead and skip ahead. I don't know what's going on with the slides here. Well, I, I'm sorry about that. I had a little technical glitch on my end. Uh, but go ahead. you can I keep going almost back to where we need to be. Here okay. We so let's, let's actually go to the, the, the final thing, the duty notification. One more. There, there we, go. we go. Sorry about so, that, everyone. Finally, the ABA opinion makes it clear that you do have a duty to notify current clients in the event that you um, have an infiltration that impacts their data, but you do not have necessarily a duty to notify former clients. And really it goes around what would be the impact on the individual. So if the data you have is very old and you don't think it would still be relevant to that individual, you might not have a duty to notify. But this is a great reason for why you should not maintain data any longer than you need to. As lawyers, we tend to be paper and data hoarders. We maintain data for decades. But if you do not have a reason, and for some practice areas, you have a reason to maintain that data. But if you do not have a reason to keep the data for longer than five, 10 years, then you really wanna get rid of it because it's just a sitting liability for you where you might have to notify your client and then you may have notification obligations under state law beyond even these ethical obligations. So um, I'm gonna turn it back over to Kent, but I wanna sort of just end this sort of ethical component because we're gonna switch sort of to, to some different topics now with saying that these ethical rules have been in place and, and nothing about the current environment has changed them. And so 
the, the things that are heightened in today's environment are actually good for you to be focusing on because you have these ethical obligations. You should be taking technology security and reasonable measures around the use of that technology into consideration. And I think this is a good time. It's a good catalyst to sort of put some time and effort towards doing the due diligence and understanding what it is that you're doing in your systems. So Kent, I'll turn it back to you before we, we, we go into the, the next section. Yeah. So I, I'm going to very briefly be, uh, and uh, because we want to get into the discussions about pr some practical steps that you can be taking. So what we're going to do now is just very briefly highlight some other legal regimes that are out there that impact your obligations to protect client information as well as to have a, you know, and address privacy and security uh, in your law practice. Uh, and uh, the first one that obviously jumps out is that's, uh, that we have here in Massachusetts is a specific regulation that says that you shall develop, implement, and maintain a comprehensive information security program. Right? And it needs to be written and it needs to include uh, address administrative, technical, and physical safeguards. This is the requirement to have a WISP. And this requirement is only applicable to personal information defined as someone's name, a uh, first name or, or first initial plus last name, and then some type of data that could be used for committing identity theft or fraud, like a bank account or a social security or a passport number, a credit card number, a driver's license number. Um, so it's a fairly narrow data set. But the other thing about this regulation is that um, when determining whether you've engaged in reasonable behavior, where you, whether you've been reasonable under your ethical obligations, um, you can look to other, these other legal norms like the data security regulation. So even if um, in how you treat confidential or sensitive client information, right? So there's a series of obligations under the regulation, and I'm just going to highlight a, a couple of them, right? Um, right. You, you. Uh, by the way, this is only applicable to um, personal information of Massachusetts residents, but it's something that all of us, including solo practitioners, should have. We should have a WISP, and and it should include um, an uh, anal uh, analysis of the internal and external risks. Um, it should be in writing. You should train your employees on it, right? There's a couple of themes here, right? Employee training. Um, and then the other thing is it, it says that the regulation says you're supposed to review it annually or, and this is something that a lot of organizations don't do, review it annually, but um, it also says you should review it when there are material changes in, uh, in the business practice, uh, in your business practices. Traditionally, that's been like if you sh if you shift a major piece of technology or add a new piece of technology into your system might be an example, right? If you go from one um, customer management relations software to another or one credit card processor to another. What we are experiencing now is undoubtedly a material change in business practices. So if you have a WISP, go back and look at it again. If you don't have one, now's a good time to create one. So, um, some other legal regimes, Jordan, I don't know if you want to, if you wanted to run through this slide quickly. Yeah, I can do that. So, um, and, and I think it's important to, to remember that, um, all your other obligations are still in play. 
So oftentimes we have, hopefully most people have used an engagement agreement or some other form of agreement to um, create the uh, relationship with their client. Oftentimes, and we're seeing this more and more, especially with corporate clients, they are proactively requiring law firms to agree to certain security and privacy measures that they're going to take in, in, into consideration in their infrastructure. So you want to make sure you are reviewing those agreements, you're understanding what you've agreed to, and that your current transition to remote work is not going to violate those. And if it is, you should be talking to your client and making sure that they understand why you're unable to continue to comply with certain aspects, make sure they're comfortable with how you're mitigating the risks that are going to be created by this new environment, and make sure that you understand where your obligations are going to fall out on that. Oftentimes, we agree to certain notifications when it comes to security and privacy, indemnifications, things that we want to make sure that we're not going to fall afoul of and create more liability on our behalf. If you are dealing with data that's impacted by HIPAA, Gramm-Leach-Bliley, the California Consumer Privacy Act, GDPR, PCI, all of the agencies and or um, industry groups that um, enforce those regulations have made it very clear that these regulations are still in play. There are no exceptions to them. When you are dealing with these new extreme situations, you still need to be complying with them. And I want to just throw this out there because a lot of people have been looking to the California Consumer Privacy Act, the CCPA, which went into effect in January 1st of this year. Um, a number of law firms on behalf of their clients have requested that the AG postpone his enforcement of the CCPA, which is meant to start July 1st of this year. All signs point to that postponement will not be granted. And in fact, um, he's encouraging consumers to be very aware of their rights in California. So if you're dealing with anyone in California or if any of your clients or you are impacted by the CCPA, it is alive and well. And so the, the main takeaway is just because we have an emergency crisis does not mean that these privacy and security regulations do not need to be complied with. So we can go ahead and move forward. Yeah, I just, I just highlight one last issue. It's also a good time to look at insurance coverage right? mm -hmm. um, and, and how that might, uh, the change circumstances um, might relate to your obligations under your insurance coverage whether you've committed to within your insurance coverage or your insurance coverage is based questionnaire that you filled out about the work environment. You've now changed that work environment, uh, that cyber insurance coverage specifically, maybe based on a questionnaire you filled out and that questionnaire is no longer, uh, may no longer be accurately reflecting your current work environment. So you might wanna raise that. So go ahead, Jordan. So this is a good time to take stock and breathe because I think we've given you a lot of information and now we're going to go through some key things to be considering as you're making this transition and this into this new work for this first this new normal. So here are sort of some top items that we would um, we're going to go through for you to address. So the first is understand and inventory what this new workforce and network is going to look like. Are you going to be using laptops? Do you have laptops to give them, et cetera? Establish training and a help desk for employees. And this can literally just be, if you have an IT issue, here is the number and or email address you can reach out to. Um, you know, come up with, it can be small trainings of, this is how we're going to use email. This is how we're going to use cell phones, et cetera. So it doesn't need to be these, you know, very you know, beautiful looking trainings. It can just be, um, this is a how-to type of article. 
Make sure that data privacy and security are part of your ongoing meetings. It should be a top item in an agenda for any administration, any management, and make sure that your employees are aware that this still matters. And then you want to make sure that you are addressing the details. I think that the last 30 days were really about what does this look like? And now we're into the phase where this is the new normal and we can start to address and flesh out what those details are going to look like. So let's delve into more detail about where what you should be looking at. So Kenneth, you want to move forward? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is review your current network infrastructure. It's really hard to understand what you're dealing with, understanding your threats, unless you currently understand what you're working with. So like I had said earlier, many people are probably working in Microsoft 365 or G Suite environments. Those are very common in the enterprise context. So review those. Do you have the appropriate um, security in place? Are you working with third parties who can help you to address security and privacy within those infrastructures? What are the tools that you're going to be using in remote access? Do you have a tool for virtual meetings? Do you have a tool for forwarding your phone number at your office to a mobile device? Do you have the hardware and the devices for you and your employees to access the system? Are those going to be your company-owned devices? Are you going to go out and buy 500 laptops? Most likely, probably not, but who knows? Um, are they going to be using personal devices? You know, you wanna take a look at what is my network? How am I going to set this up? Oftentimes people think that setting up a remote workforce is as simple as like turning on your laptop and opening it, and there's a lot more to it, right? There's a lot more components that you need to be taking into consideration. Um, do you have um, encryption available to secure your communications? I like to point this out. Oftentimes with, especially Microsoft 365 and G Suite, um, encryption is an option for a lot of your storage and your communications. And sometimes it's a free option to include in your system, but you need to opt into it. So I encourage everyone to go back and take a look at what they've opted into for their environments, because sometimes it's free, it's included in your package, you just have not opted into it. So have you gone and taken those, uh, the, the ability where it's available to opt into additional security and privacy measures? Um, and if you haven't, why haven't you? Have you made the analysis of maybe that's going to impact our ability to do certain functions, so we're not going to opt into it, et cetera. But I would encourage you to go back and take a look at that. And then you really want to be aware of if you're using any third-party services. And when I talk about third-party services, I'm talking about e-discovery tools. Um, if you're using Slack to communicate with your team, if you're using um, Zoom as a virtual meeting environment, if you're using um, any of these third-party services, if you're using someone to set up a portal for you that's going to be hosted on another environment, you want to take a look at those contracts to make sure that security and privacy is addressed. Who owns that data that you're putting it on there? Do they have visibility into that data? If they have visibility, is that violating any confidentiality issues? Are you able to address that contractually to make sure that they're not merging your data with other, with other companies' data? And again, that could be a confidentiality issue. So this is a good time to be taking a look at your current network infrastructure and understanding what you're currently using and understanding if it matches your obligations as an attorney and where you want to sit on that risk scale. So Ken, I don't know if you had anything to add to this slide. I, I would just add at this point, a lot of people I've been talking to about issues, including myself, start to feel a little overwhelmed. Right? Like, <laughs> how do I actually take this on? I don't have an IT department I can just hand this over to. 
And I think the key to that is start doing something. It doesn't have to be done all at once. It doesn't have to be um, comprehensive from the beginning. Um, start taking some steps. And I think one good place to start is thinking about the home environment um, that you're setting things up in and start thinking about the range of issues here and the reasonable steps that you need to take to create a private and secure and confidential environment to be doing your work as a lawyer, right? And so some of the basic building blocks, right, are the Wi-Fi network that's being used at home and how secure is that, right? If, and, and you didn't, you might not have worried about that in the past, but now there is a need to worry about it because we've got people really targeting um, the Wi-Fi networks to try to get into them. So simple steps that a help desk can be helpful with. You should go through and help every one of your employees who's connecting remotely figure out how to change the default password on their, uh, on their Wi-Fi router to something that's more secure. You should be looking at using virtual private networks that provides a secure pipeline into your office network or systems from a remote environment. Again, there are, there are cost-effective ways of, of, of getting VPNs, or you might even have something already that you can expand or, or initiate. Looking at the use of, of personal devices by your employees, by your partners, by your colleagues, right? um, and revising the policies around those, your bring your own device policy, and part of that can also be implementing a mobile device management system Right? This is another way of sort of putting a walling off, putting a, um, protections around the law firm related data, even when you're using, um, uh, when you're using their personal devices. There are some tricky things that go device management networks and, and employee relations that can't get into, but that's an option that you can think of. Another option is just get them a separate work to and, um, and uh, you know, get them laptops, inexpensive laptops maybe, get them cell phones to use and ask that they only be used for work and have them set up before you give them to them specifically for that purpose. That may be both cost effective and, and helpful, right? Avoiding personal account and with uh, personal data storage as a way of sharing information related to work is I think pretty, pretty important. And then Jordan and I had an interesting discussion about this as we were preparing. You can't forget the physical security and confidentiality, right? Even in your WISP, there may be a provision that says that sensitive information has to be locked up at the end of the day. Well, even in the home environment, it's not a good idea to leave uh, attorney-client privilege documents all over the dining room table when you go to bed at night. Um, and so helping your employees think through finding an environment where they can communicate with confidentiality and they can physically secure um, the devices and the hard copy documents that are being used in practice of law. And another component on the physical security is you, you have no idea what your, your employee's home environment is like. And if both your employee, their spouse, their kids are all at home doing work, do they have a place that they can go have 
phone calls without their, their spouse overhearing or their children overhearing, which, you know, they could be confidential phone calls. So, you know, there's, and, and I'm not saying that we're going to solve all of this. It's just things to be considering of, does the employee have a place they can go to have confidential phone calls? If not, are there ways to minimize the risk of exposure to the family generally about your clients, you know, very sensitive information? Right. So very quickly, because we're running out of time, this, this brings up the point that communication is key here. Communicating between management of the firm with your, with, with your IT providers, um, Jordan, maybe you could talk briefly about the whole issue of shadow IT. Yeah, and so in, in our world, shadow IT is that IT that you don't know about, but that your employees have um, decided to use because they need to have a functionality. So a great example we see in most contexts is the use of Dropbox. So you've made a policy, all, all documents are going to be saved in our environment, and we're going to send them via this secure file share to our clients. And then the client can't open the secure file share, they need it immediately, so the, so the employee creates a Dropbox account and puts the documents up there, sends it to their employee, sends it to the client, et cetera. That's a great example of shadow IT because you don't know it exists, the employee does, but you don't know what they've agreed to on their terms of service, et cetera. And so the key thing is to talk to your employees and to have a conversation of what functionality do you need? Do you need to be able to send documents to a client? Okay, so how are we gonna do that in a way that we're gonna be aware of it and that we're gonna make sure it's secure and private? Um, and really this does come down to communication because employees will find a workaround. They're very good, they're very smart, they are very persistent. And so you need to be asking what, what tools do you need and what tools can we give you to address those needs without them having to go around you to, to find that need. Another theme been coming up is training, right? Training for employees and part of that training, and again, this is a very low cost way of massively increasing your security, right? Or, or, we, or decreasing your profile, right? Train your employees about the fact, train yourself about the fact um, and, uh, that there are all these attacks that are now being focused on uh, people working from home. The phishing attacks, we didn't talk before, but honeypots, right? It's like the fake map of spread of coronavirus that lets malware get dropped onto your computer when you, when you go to that website. The social engineering scams that are being used, right? The fraudulent scheme. Train people on it. I'm even aware of some organizations that have set up places within the network, safe places to go to for news and information about um, the coronavirus crisis to try to limit the amount that they're, they're going out onto the internet in unsafe places. I'm not sure that's realistic um, for smaller organizations, but um, certainly training people about um, what's happening and also making them feel comfortable in reporting that they think something may have happened, right? They had clicked on something, they expected an article to come up and nothing came up. Well, that's a clue that there may well have been some malware that was dropped, um, that someone went, you know, fell for a phishing attack. Make them know, let them know who they can contact and let them know that they're encouraged, not discouraged from contacting people. They're not gonna get in trouble because mistakes are made the in the beginning. We've also about the, the, the fund transfer and payment process, right? You, you, you're, your, your finance pe people can't just walk down the hall to check with you anymore to make sure something's all right. Make sure you have processes in place and, and voice verify or video verify 
with using known contact information with someone before you before you implement um, wire transfer instructions or changed wire transfer instructions, both with clients and vendors and internally. So. And one last point on communication, um, you know, XPAM, um, we conceived of it as a virtual law firm. And so we've been virtual from our inception, which in some ways has made this last couple of months, you know, an easier transition for us, although definitely impactful. But I will say having run a team virtually, the number one struggle is communication. I cannot express to you how frustrating it is to make people communicate because I can't just get up and walk down the hallway to talk to my associate. I can't just, you know, have them knock on my door. I can't see that they're in there doing work. I can't see what they're doing. And so you really need to emphasize to everyone, your clients, your the people you're working with, your colleagues, that they need to over communicate in some ways. Hey, I'm on right now, or I'm not going to be on. When are they going to be available? Um, and creating those channels to communicate. I would say the number one thing that ends up being an issue in our firm, and it consistently is, is communication. And it's just because we need to emphasize, overemphasize it when we're in a remote environment. So this to me is the number, the make it or break it when you're, when you're working remotely. So very quickly, and another key component here is to have an incident response plan. Don't let the first time um, that you um, start thinking about what to do if there is an incident that, you know, potential breach, a problem. Don't have the first time you think about who you're going to call for help and what steps you're going to take be when you've got that incident occurring. Think through it ahead of time. We've done a whole series of, uh, of, of presentations of webinars and, and, um, and uh, um, presentations at the BBA on developing incident response plans. It's too much for us to cover now, but um, uh, you want to, you, you don't want the first time that you're dealing with this issue to be when you think there's been a breach. So let's, let's hop into some, um, some helpful resources that we're going to review. And, um, I, we, we put together just a couple, uh, couple of slides related to them, but you know, the BBA, the privacy, cybersecurity and digital law section has put together, together a, um, a COVID-19 resource guide for uh, that's useful for law firms and, and, um, and lawyers to use. SJC Standing Committee on Lawyer Wellbeing um, actually has a tech line, a phone, a phone number, which I do not have the complete number there, which is unfortunate. There is a phone there. Um, um, so you reach me, get you the right number. Um, but that is uh, a phone number that you can call for basic technical help, and it's staffed by volunteer lawyers. So if it's how do I set up a, a Zoom conference or um, uh, how do I set up a, a multi-factor authentication on my account, those are things that you might be able to get some help with there. And there's also some great information at the, at the website that's, uh, that's provided there. Um, the... Pennsylvania Bar Association, thanks to, to Jordan, has this great guide um, that served as the basis for much of the presentation that we made today. Um, Board of Bar Overs, um, it's actually Bar Council, one of the Bar Councils put together an article um, this, uh, a couple of years ago on, uh, uh, on technology and, um, and, uh, our, and the legal ethics obligations that I think is, is helpful. Um, a few other sources uh, of information here, um, government, um, 
uh, as well as uh, as private sector information on risk management in a remote work environment. So on that, we want to be respectful of time. It's now one o'clock. And of course, we, we, we have had a few questions that came in. I think, Jordan, I, I hope I can speak for you when I say I would encourage people um, to reach out to either of us. Our email addresses are there. Please feel free to contact us if you have any questions and you'd like to follow up. And beyond that, we uh, just like to thank you for um, for your time today, and uh, and uh, please stay safe. Thanks, everyone.